A rabbi, a Hindu and a lawyer are in a car. They run out of gas and are forced to stop at a farmer's house. The farmer says that there are only two extra beds, so one person will have to sleep in the barn. The Hindu says, I'm humble, I will sleep in the barn. So he goes out to the barn. A few minutes later, the farmer hears a knock at the door. It's the Hindu, and he says, there's a cow in the barn. It's against my beliefs to sleep with a cow. So the rabbi says, I'm humble, I'll sleep in the barn. A few minutes later, the farmer hears another knock at the door, and it's the rabbi. He says that it's against his beliefs to sleep where there's a pig, and there's a pig in the barn. So the lawyer is forced to sleep in the barn. A few minutes later, there's a knock at the door. It's the pig and the cow. (laughs) So if you're a lawyer or friends with a lawyer, it's just a joke. Loosen up. It's fine. All right. Let me do some recapping now for those of you who would remember. We started this series on Philippians three weeks ago. Um, and I started, and I just gave an introduction. I just gave a, a synopsis of the book and what it's about. And uh, for those of you who weren't here for that, let me go into that very, very briefly. But it's a short book, four chapters, very, very short. And what it was originally was a letter written by Paul to the church in Philippi. So Paul, as you know, was a special man, used of God in incredible ways, um, in that he was... First, someone who tormented and tortured the church, who literally executed people who believed in the way, who were Christians, who professed faith in Jesus, Uh, that would mean your execution, you would die. Um, And he would be the guy who would stand there nodding his approval. And uh, one day, he was on his way back to this city called Damascus, and Jesus, the resurrected Savior, we're talking about Jesus after he had died, risen from the dead, ascended into heaven, he actually met Saul, on the way, knocked him off his donkey, blinded him, and gave him an experience that changed the course of his life forever. And from that moment on, Saul became Paul, and Paul's, he, he took the mission. His mission in life, instead of, instead of uh, cutting down the church, became growing the church. And he was one of the principal growers of the church in the early in the early days, in the beginning times. And so Paul went around and he seemed to take God's commission um, a little more seriously than the others in that the others, you see, when Jesus, just before he ascended, he said, go into all the nations. Where, where did he say specifically? Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and ends of the earth. Well, the odd thing was, everyone just stayed there. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, they were all here. And and none of the disciples ventured anywhere else whatsoever until Paul, the one who was persecuting the church, became a Christian himself. Then these lines are the journeys he made. Remember that this here is the Roman Empire. So that was the known world. That wasn't just like some small fry. That That was everything that there was to know came from there. Everyone who didn't live in the Roman Empire was like, well, who who cares where they're from? Um, Because the Roman Empire is the world. Uh, They were the most powerful nation at the time. And so he, not single-handedly, he went out with other believers, but he went and he encouraged and he strengthened churches 
all over here, and obviously we're talking about by boat and road and those sorts of things and walking, and he literally spread the gospel and started churches all over the place. And without the work that Paul did, I would put money on the fact that there would be very few things in existence today, church-wise, that are here now, uh, if it weren't for, for Paul's work and these missionary journeys, because the other disciples all just stayed within that little area in Judea. So, the church that he went to in one of his journeys, he took about four or five of these journeys, and in his second journey, it's highlighted here in purple. You'll see his journey, and he goes all the way to there. That's the key place we're looking at now. Philippi, or Philippi, if you're from Cape Town. He went there, and... uh, And there wasn't a church. You know, it was his normal custom to go into a synagogue to preach the gospel. And then some people would believe it and some people wouldn't. And the people who did believe the message about Jesus, he would start a church with them. uh, And and they would become a gathering and and, uh, a Christian community. But there wasn't a big enough Jewish community to even have a synagogue. So he couldn't go into one and start preaching. So he went down to a river, found a ladies' prayer meeting. and, uh, And he found a lady there, a wealthy businesswoman named Lydia, who was from Asia, which is not too far from there. And, uh, and she became the very first sort of part of his church, if I can say that. And then the next thing that happened, you'll remember the story from three weeks ago, if you were here, was that they started walking around the town and the streets of Philippi, and there was a lady who was telling the future. She had a demon inside of her, and Paul recognized it. And she used to make a lot of money for her owners as someone who would be the, you know, the Philippi medium, the Long Island medium of the day. And she would walk around there, and she would tell people's future and make money for her owners until Paul said to the demon, get out of her, and it left her. And she became useless in terms of making money. She could no longer uh, do anything that would be generating an income. And so they got very upset with him. But the bottom line is this, that slave girl became another part of the church. Then there was another thing that happened, a very powerful thing, because as a result of of, uh, releasing that slave girl from the bondages of Satan at that time, he was thrown into prison. And while in prison, God did something miraculous. He shook the foundations while Paul was there, praising God. And the jailer and his family, to cut a long story short, the jailer and his entire household got saved. And so the start of his church in Philippi, Philippi was exactly that. It was a rich businesswoman, was a poor slave girl, and it was a jailer's household. It was a jailer, his family, his kids, and his servants that would have been there. So this church had a very special place in Paul's heart. It wasn't like any of the other churches he visited. This was the first church that Paul established from scratch with no one. And uh, because of that, he knew the people intimately. Uh, And so this letter is written exactly like that. It's incredibly intimate, and it's affectionate, and it's not like anything else that Paul wrote at all. Um, It keeps speaking lovingly about the people that are there because, you know, he knew them uh, from the very, very start, and it was a beautiful connection. So years after he he established that church, he wrote this letter to them, to encourage them. Now, he was only there for a couple of weeks, and the church was established. When he left Philippi, 
It was a handful of believers who were brand new Christians. So for him, he would not have known, is this thing going to work? Is this not going to work? Is this going to fail? Am I going to leave? And then they're going to have no one and then nothing's going to happen. You know, they couldn't just email and say, hey, things are going cool. Or just text. Or just Skype. Uh, For them, they would have had to send letters. And hopefully the letters will make it by sea to where Paul was and they would find him and he would get some encouragement from them. And so, so it was a very difficult thing to even know that this thing, this beautiful, small, intimate church that he had started in, in Philippi, if it was thriving or if it was dead. But the Bible tells us that that church actually would send him financial support. So that was obviously a means of, of also, it would be something that let him know that they're doing okay. They understand. Because he was their spiritual father in a sense, they felt that they wanted to support him financially, and that's what they did. And then when he was under house arrest for a couple of years, just before he was executed, they sent him a man. His name was Epaphroditus. Okay, a bit of a strange name, but anyway, that's what it was. And they sent this man to Paul and they, as a support to him, to help him, to, because he was getting on in age. He wasn't that old. He was in his 60s, but, but at that day, it wasn't like it is now, where people live to 80, 90, 100. Um, so he was getting on in age, and he needed help, and they sent this guy just to help him physically. And so the church was a beautiful support to him, and he loved them dearly. Then, that was in the third, uh, three weeks ago. Then two weeks ago, Sarah preached, and Sarah spoke about chapter 1 of Philippians. Chapter 1 of Philippians can be summed up in one word, perspective. That's it. Chapter 1 just gives you Paul's perspective, and his perspective is healthy. It's incredible. It is helpful. Listen here. If you need to get perspective on a situation in your life, it would be helpful for you to read Philippians chapter 1. The perspective that he gives is his perspective on Christians. His perspective on circumstances and difficult circumstances, remembering that he's writing about joy while being under house arrest. He gives his perspective on life and death. And he gives his perspective on the church. That was chapter one. If you didn't get it, I would encourage you to listen to the podcast or or even just read the chapter. That would be helpful. Today we're going to look at chapter two. Chapter two could be summed up, at least part of it, in that word there, community. I've very deliberately taken the unity and made it different to the community. It's important, and you'll understand why in a moment when I go through uh, what Paul has to say to this church over there. So, sometimes, every now and again, I like to go through the message paraphrase. Uh, You guys heard of the message. Now, most people read the New King James or the New Living Translation or the New International Version. There's a number of different versions of the Bible that you can read. My advice to you, if you still don't know which one to read, would be find the easiest one for you to understand. They are all good translations, and they will all be helpful to you. Don't feel like you need to suffer through the these and the thous in order to understand what God's Word is saying. You need to find one that's, that, that you can read easily. Now, the message is not a translation of the Bible. The message is a paraphrase of the Bible. So it puts the Bible into modern language, and it, the point of it is to help us to understand, because sometimes things are lost uh, in the context, in things that happened many thousands of years ago to today. And so what, what Eugene Peterson has done is he's just made it into a really easy-to-read format, but he hasn't lost any of the truth and the meaning of the verses. And so 
Today, I'm going to look and it's, I'm going to pull a lot of stuff out of the message. I just find it helpful for this passage of Scripture. Um, but as a change, instead of me reading it to you straight off, let's see if this works. We're going to read these verses. Interesting passage of scripture. Would you agree? It's quite amazing uh, to see what comes out of there. So I want to just pull that apart just a little bit and see what we can get there. Look, Paul's writing to the church in Philippi. But he's not just writing to the church in Philippi. He's writing to all believers everywhere. You know, when Paul wrote his letters, he was often addressing very specific issues that were happening in churches. And those letters would have been passed around from church to church and copied by people and passed to other churches. And, uh, and in that way, the body of Christ all sort of got the same teaching on issues. And so that's exactly what's happening. So as we stand here today, uh, a couple thousand years later, we have the exact same thing. We're literally looking at the letters that he wrote to other churches and reading it in church, which is how it would have been done back then, um, in order to see what is Paul's understanding of this stuff. Because Paul did have a phenomenal understanding of church and of what it means to be a follower of Christ. So, let's quickly go through a couple of verses of that in the community. 
Okay. So notice the way that he uses his language. If you've gotten anything at all out of following Christ, if his love has made any difference in your life, if being in a community of the Spirit means anything to you, if you have a heart, if you care, can you hear? It's like pleading. It's like, man, if, if, if this thing, if this Jesus thing, if this Christianity thing has meant anything to you at all, then you need to pay attention to what comes after that. Then, do me a favor, agree with each other, love each other, be deep-spirited friends. Don't push your way to the front. Don't sweet-talk your way to the top. Put yourself aside and help others get ahead. Don't be obsessed with getting your own advantage. Forget yourselves long enough to lend a helping hand. So what he's speaking about there is that. He's saying if, 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 if Christianity has meant anything to you at all, then we need to be so careful about the way we do community, about the way we are when we're together. Now Paul is speaking about a deep sense of community within a diverse environment. What I mean by that is he's speaking to, remember the people that started off the church? Lydia, woman... Maybe middle-aged, from Asia, wealthy, businesswoman. So there's a lot of things that she was. Then you get the slave girl. Poor, young, probably from the area. Then you get the jailer, probably Roman, so a different culture. Male, you would have had his whole household, which would have been children, grandparents, servants. So there again, you've got poor, you've got old, you've got young, you've got rich, you've got, you've got a little bit of everything. And that's just the handful of people that he started with. This is a couple of years after he started. We need to assume that there's probably a couple of members that have been added to the church in the two years or so between him establishing it and him writing these things. So there, there was a diverse congregation that he was speaking to. Now, the interesting thing was that he wasn't speaking into a problem. You see, in most of Paul's other letters, he was addressing issues. In this one, it, there's no indication that the church in Philippi was struggling with a lack of community or with the difficulty in connecting with each other. But... He still saw it as vitally important to share and to speak into that thing. To say, look out. If this Christian thing has meant anything to you, you need to do this. Love each other. Protect each other. Nurture each other. Be there for each other. Don't try and get ahead of each other. Consider others better than yourselves. Because he's saying, this is important. This is the body of Christ. Unity here is critical. So even though there wasn't a problem, he's saying just double-check that there's not a problem and then protect the unity in the body with everything because there is power in unity. So we have a similar mix of people in most churches across South Africa. Uh, we're quite, uh, I wouldn't say unique, but we're in quite a similar position as Paul would have found that church to be in that there's different races, it's different ages, there's different social statuses, there's different uh, employment, there's different everything. We have the same sort of demographics as the church that Paul was speaking to, which is why I find it so helpful 
uh, as I look out over here, you know, the interesting thing is if we had to take a piece of paper and after each service analyze who was at every service, and we, we don't do this, by the way, but if we had to, we would say, okay, there's this many people who are under the age of 12, this many people under the age of 18, this many people uh, who are knocking on heaven's door, this many people who are in the middle, you know, this many teenagers, this many that, we would say, okay, so we've got like quite a broad spectrum in terms of ages in the church. You'd have to, I mean, look around, you agree, right? And we're about to have the kids in here as well, so you'll definitely agree. So we, age-wise, hey man, we are broad. Race-wise, well, we got black and white. And colored. How else are you just waiting at? You were like, what about me? No. We do. It's completely mixed race-wise. What about social status? What about employment? What if we had to take that piece of paper and say, okay, everyone who earns nothing, everyone who earns over this, over this, over this. Well, I'm pretty sure we'd be able to have people in all of those categories. So when you look at this church, the assembly, Krafrenet, 2015, October, you could say, yo, we are diverse. You know, if this was like the South African rugby team, we'd be doing fine. We are, we are integrated, okay? We are cool. Um, when you look at it on paper. But you see, there's something here. It's easy to have the illusion of unity when everyone's sitting in the same building. Now, Understand that I, like Paul, am not speaking to a problem. I'm speaking to us to say, let's think about where we stand in, this, in terms of unity in our community and what we can do to branch that out, to increase that unity, to build our community and strengthen it. So I'm not speaking into a problem, but when I think about this thing of community and I think about true and genuine community, there's two pictures that always come to my mind. And this is what they look like. That's the first picture. It's a bag of marbles. Anyone play marbles as a kid? It was one of my best games. I was brilliant. Well, I don't like to brag. But I was pretty good. And uh, with the Inies, you remember those? And the Guns. <laughs> I don't even remember what the others were. Milkies. I'm not sure. Anyway. We should play after church one day. Anyway. <laughs> So it was a good time. I used to enjoy it, and I like marbles, and that's how you buy them now, and those little see-through net things. And uh, when I think of community, it kind of looks like that. I mean, if you look there, you've got sort of different color marbles, and we could have a few milkies in there as well, a couple of ironies that would help. Um, but, but you see that they all kind of, they're just so neatly together. And you think, man, that is community. Check it that. They're just together in that bag, and it looks amazing. But they're not really connected other than, then they're in the same place. Which is possible to be the same for the four walls that are around us now. You guys are obviously the green marbles. <laughs> and me and Ben are the blue ones. So, in these four walls, we could tick on paper and say we've got everything. But we could just be a diverse group of people meeting in a building. There's another level and another depth of community 
which is expressed in that picture. I think this is what Paul was heading towards. I think this is what Paul was referring to. It's not about being necessarily just in proximity. It's not just about being in the same environment. There's something more. You know that every single grape on the bunch is connected in some way to every other grape on the bunch. And it's an awesome thing. I think that's just, for me, just such a true picture of community. Paul is urging the believers then and now to fight for deep and meaningful community, not just the illusion of community. Church is a unique environment, and it's a unique opportunity for believers to come together as a community and experience God. What we have here is completely unlike anything that you'll find anywhere else. I was speaking to Ingrid earlier on this week, and we were speaking about how church is a leveler. Church is the thing that levels people in a good way. Because here, you can have rich doctors socializing, having fun, building, encouraging unemployed people. Where are you going to find that? Over here, you can have people who are struggling and people who have come through struggles and been okay, and they connect. In a school context, and this is what we were talking about, you know, in my day, wow, you know I'm getting old when I start saying things like that. (sighs) Back when I was young, school kids didn't mingle. Okay, if you were in matric, you would not hang out. You would not even spend time with a grade 11 or a grade 10, or a grade 9, and you would kick a grade 8. No, that's just the way that it was. There wasn't all this integration and mixing and all this kind of stuff. But you know what church does? It just levels the playing field. It takes away the age thing. It takes away the class thing. It takes away the discrimination thing. It takes away all of that stuff, and it should. We had how many grade 7s here on Friday? 28 grade 7s. We've decided we're going to integrate them a term early. So before they're officially allowed to be here, we're going to let them be here so that by the time they're in grade 8, they're integrated. This feels like home for them. And so we had 28 grade 7s here for the first time on Friday. And you know what? It's so important for us that they don't get here and just get into a clump and are ignored by everybody else. Because church is a leveler. Over here, a grade 11 is not more important than a grade 8. A grade 12 is no more important than a grade 9. It doesn't work like that. We are Christians. This is a true community, and it's important for us to understand that. And it works the same in an adult context as well. The church, as I said, is a unique environment where we get to mix up and down, and it's got nothing to do with anything. Our common bond is much more deep than these superficial things of race and money and cars and grades. I don't know if you found this, but I've often found that God works on us primarily through other believers. Yes, He speaks to us through His Word, and yes, He speaks sometimes directly to us as we're walking or showering or doing our thing. But more often than not, nine times out of ten for me, I'm spoken to through either the preaching of other people or the conversations that happen between me and other people, even if it's discussing sometimes random things. 
God speaks. And that's why community is so important. In Hebrews, we don't know exactly who wrote Hebrews. But he had some incredible things to say. And in Hebrews 10 verse 25, you'll know this verse. He encourages us, the author, to, to not stop meeting together as some are in the habit of doing. He says keep on meeting together because he understands something. That it's in our meeting together that there is unity, that there is community, that there is power in our meeting together. And when people are battling and they pull away from church, I'm telling you now, I've seen it 10 times out of 10. They don't go, hooray. When they are battling and they pull out of a church context of community, they go like that. That's the reality. We need each other. We are wired like that. Some of us are loners and hermits and we kind of like our own space. Even we are wired to be in connection, to be like that, not like that. And so when Paul's writing this stuff, he is like pleading and he's saying, if, if being a Christian means anything to you, put each other first before yourselves. Love each other. Value this thing of community. So, are you still with me? I'm only going to get to the first third of this chapter. So that's just how it's going to work, and that's going to have to be okay. Um, but the next part of this first third, see, Paul speaks about the value of community. Then he says something amazing. And you might have picked it up from those verses that came up there. He tells us the one key ingredient for that unity. So if we really say, okay, if all of us can sit here and agree and say, yes, unity, it's God's idea, it's good for the church, it's going to help me as a person, it's going to help the other people in the church, we can all nod and agree with that. So he says, what next? How does that happen? There's one word that he uses. There's a phrase I'm going to read it. See if you pick it up quickly. Think of yourselves the way Christ thought of himself. He had equal status with God, but didn't think so much of himself that he had to cling to the advantages of that status, no matter what. Not at all. When the time came, he set aside the privileges of deity and took on the status of a slave, became human. Having become human, he stayed human. It was an incredibly humbling process. He didn't claim special privileges. Instead, he lived a selfless, obedient life and then died a selfless, obedient death and the worst kind of death at that, a crucifixion. Because of that obedience, God lifted him high and honored him far beyond anyone or anything ever so that all created beings in heaven and on earth, even those long ago dead and buried, will bow in worship before this Jesus Christ, and call out in praise that he is the master of all, to the glorious honor of God the Father. The word there, and the key phrase, true community is not possible without this ingredient, humility. Humility is the key ingredient. Now, Raoul mentioned this when he was up here, and he spoke about God humbling himself, We talk about the creator of heaven and earth, the one who put everything in place, going, coming to be here, to be born the way he was born, to live the way he lived. Not rich, not privileged, but the Son of Man came to serve, not to be served. So Jesus humbled himself and came down here. And there's a fantastic definition, which I'll get to in a second. Because that word humility or humble, 
comes from the Greek word, and Paul used it. And what it means is to bring low. It's to be less than. It's to be now. We need to get clear on something. Because too many people understand humility to be like a doormat. They understand humility to be like I'm a pushover. If I'm humble and I put everyone else before me, then I'm going to be forgotten. Like, yes, I'll do anything you want. I'm humble. I'll do anything. And that's not what he's talking about. But the world, you see, this word is in contrast to the way the world sees it. What does the world say you need to be? At the top. You've got to get to the top. Top of your game. You've got to get, everything is about achieving, going to the top, making yourself better. When you get there, you'll arrive. Which is in complete contrast to this word, to bring low, to humble yourself. Here's the definition which will help you to see this. And it's from C.S. Lewis. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. You can tweet that. Don't put it as my thing. (laughs) People are going to come back to me on that. That's a fantastic way to understand what humility really is. It's not being a doormat. So, let's put what Paul is saying together for our context. First of all, he's saying we need to fight for and we need to protect true unity in our church community. Not just the illusion of unity. And what I want to do, and where this message is headed, and where it's probably going to land this morning, is that this is for you to think about. Which are we? Take it even more personal, personal, personally, than where we are. Where are you? You know how you know. It's the people you connect with after the service. It's the people you connect with during the week. It's the way you speak to people before the service, after the service, and for some of you during the service. That's how you know. So what I'm saying is don't make this a general thing. Don't say, "Mm, yeah, I think our church is doing well. Look around. Young, old, rich, poor, lots of races. Hey, we're doing okay. What I want to say is, where are you? Where am I? When it comes to the doors opening at the back there, who am I standing next to every time? Or am I making a concerted effort to get into someone else's world for those three minutes? It makes a difference because you know what? When we start to do that, you might say, but it's so little. It opens a door. You know how you make friends with someone? Most of you can't remember how your best friends became your best friends. That's normal. Because the way that it happens is so, how's it going? Hi. And then three weeks later, hey, how's it going? No, it's cool. And then four weeks later, hey, how's it going? No, it's cool. And you? No, I'm good. How's family? Oh, cool. Okay. And you know what? It just builds and builds and builds. But if you don't start with a, hey, how's it going? High five. Well, you don't go anywhere. And so you've got to start these little connections. That's why we do what we do. You know, when we stand up here, and Raul did it this morning, say how's it to someone you didn't come with. You know, we're not just trying to be cute. We're trying to make an opportunity for you to go to someone out of your world, out of your space, out of your spheres, and just go, hey, how's it going? No, it's cool, cool. And maybe in three weeks you'll say a few more words to them. But you know what? A door opens just like that. And you can walk through it anytime you want.
That's the awesome thing. And as you do that more and more, you find you build rapport, you build trust, people understand. And so it's, it's why we do what we do. We don't serve good coffee afterwards just because I'm into coffee or Ingrid's into coffee. That is part of the reason. But the most of the reason is because it, it, we want you to stick around and connect with people. That's the point of it. If we didn't want that, we'd just open the doors and say, cool, we'll see you on Sunday. But because we so believe in this thing of community, we buy tables, we buy coffee, we buy milk, we have a cafe team that serves just because we want people to stick around after the service and greet each other and make a connection. That's the only reason we do it, because of that. Because we believe in connecting people to people and people to God. But I don't want that just to be a phrase on the wall. And I don't want us to have the illusion of unity without true unity in our community. Okay, so, as I said, take a second, just while I'm speaking, and think about yourself in in this. Where do you fit in? Because for you, it might just be the mingling after the service. That might be your next thing. Maybe you're going to say this. Normally, I give myself about three minutes, then I'm out the gate. Maybe today you can say, I give myself five minutes before I'm out the gate. Maybe instead of saying, okay, I just want to connect with this person before I leave, say, I just want to connect with this person and one person I never met before. Just a quick one before I leave today. But you know what? It takes these intentional decisions. It's not just going to happen. We are all creatures built the same way out of habit and we will all gravitate to the people we know and the people that we've got something with already. That's just normal. It takes a serious amount of effort to turn around from that and say, how's it going? This is going to be awkward, but everything okay? Cool, all right. Uh, That's just life. That's how things start. Nothing starts off so, so easy. So maybe for you it's just mingling after the service that's going to change a bit. Maybe for you... You can invite someone to your connect group and they can find that sort of community because we have connect groups in this church and those are designed so that people can, can be the grapes and not the marbles, so that people can get into each other's worlds a little bit. So maybe for you it's inviting someone to a connect group or maybe for you it's attending a connect group. Maybe you haven't been in one for the last 34 years and you feel like maybe it's time. That's okay. You can be a part of a connect group. You know what that does? It just creates bonds. And it starts to build that true community that Paul is referring to. Maybe it's even this, and this is hectic. Maybe it's seeing someone out of a church context. Maybe it's even having coffee with them in the week. Maybe it's going for a walk. Maybe it's inviting them fishing. Maybe it's something like having someone over for a bride. That's like next level. But it's possible. It's possible to do that. Um, But whatever your next thing is, that's my point. Think about that. Because if this message is, oh, that was cool. Grapes, marbles, I get it. Cool. It can be that. Or you can say, you know, I want to make a little change. Just a little change to the way I do things. Because I'm going to build bridges with other people. All right. When everyone, great. Cool. I think that's it. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to finish up there. So there's two more thirds of this chapter. 
we'll decide whether we go into the other bits of this chapter next week or into chapter three. Uh, we'll see how it works. But, um, but it's a simple message. It's not overly complicated, and it's not really even my message. Let's be honest. It came, I hope, mostly from, the, from Paul and what he was saying to the church in Philippi. He was saying, protect your unity. Why? Or how? Humility. Consider others better than yourself. When you consider yourself better than other people, well, you're never going to be helping anybody. But as soon as you can humble yourself, I mean, God, when he appeared and he gave the commandments, and he said he was going to do it, and he invited everyone up, but no one came because of the storm, because of the lightning, because of the fire, because of the trembling. And God was just almost too massive, too scary, too big. And so what he did was he became one of us. He humbled himself to become one of us so that he could show us his nature and the way he wants us to conduct ourselves. So it's a, it's a simple message, but hopefully it will have long-lasting fruit. Let us pray. Dear brethren, let's stand. I'm going to pray and then we're going to get into this baptism, which is going to be exciting. <clears throat> Lord God, thank you for your word. Thank you that you've preserved it. Thank you, Lord, for the writings of Paul. Thank you that you met him on the road and changed him and transformed him and set his life on a different course. Father, because of that, we can stand here this morning and, uh, Father, we can read what's found in your word, Lord God, that, that's inspiring and it's encouraging and it's life-building. Father, I thank you so much, Lord, for, for this short, these 11 verses that speak about the depth of community. Father God, you are the ultimate community. You understand community more than anyone else. You live in perfect harmony and community, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. No one fighting for the top position. No one jealous of anyone else's abilities or roles. But Lord... It's just incredible to us how perfect you, you, you just are with yourself. And Lord God, you understand community. And Father God, we know that you want that for your body, the church. And Father, I pray that this church, Lord, that we would, that we would be that. Lord, I pray that we wouldn't be a bunch of marbles in, in a bag. But Lord God, that we'd be interconnected. Father, that there would be no one who feels far off, that there'd be no one who feels lonely, that there'd be no one who feels left out. But Lord, that there would be a connection, a meaningful, deep connection between the members of this body. We thank you so much for bringing us together. We don't think it was just our random decisions that brought us into this building. But Lord, we thank you that you are knitting us together in community to be here for one another, strengthening each other, encouraging each other, spurring each other on. Lord, we pray that we would just please you so much with a sense of community. We thank you that you gave us the ultimate example by coming here. Not to be served, but to serve. Lord, help us to serve. Let us put ourselves second. In Jesus' name, we ask for something to change in the minds and the hearts of your people here this morning. Amen. Amen.